John chapter 12, and we're looking at the first uh, 11 verses. This is God's Word, John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray, betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. We're going to stop our reading there. This is God's word, and we give thanks to him for it. So we come to the preaching of God's word. If you have a Bible, I'd really encourage you to open it up and to follow along. John chapter 12. And here's really where we're, we're going today. It's a movement towards death. It's a movement towards death. But my question is, how do you live? Okay, it's a movement towards death. But my question is, how do you live? Let's pray and ask for God's help as we think about this together. Father, as we continue in our series in John's Gospel... We pray that you would meet with us today, that we would hear Jesus speak, and that we would be shaped and changed by him. Lord, we ask this in his name. Amen. I wonder, I wonder is it a, a doing a thing in this area? I haven't really seen it that much, but then certainly in Fermanagh, this was a thing. It happened just before you got married. Basically, what would happen was this. Your so-called friends would ambush you at any given point, and they would take you off and uh, uh, probably tie you up or, or put you in a trailer and then cover you in a whole mix of stuff, eggs and flour, mayonnaise, tomato sauce, vegetable oil, whatever it was, just they just cover you in it. And, uh, and there you are. And the thing is, you knew it was coming, right? You'd know it was coming, but you just didn't know when. And you had a, a pretty good uh, idea that at some point they were going to attempt to get you. 
And I had a very strong intention that they were not going to get me. <laughs> they were not going to get me. And so it kind of played in your mind. There was times when you were thinking, um, okay, should I go to this event or should I stay at home? Is this the one where they're planning to get us? And it did kind of play on your mind. Is it a trap? I'm about to walk into a trap or, or, or not so much. And really, you were at the mercy of your friends and, and you had no control whatsoever. Well, the night came and they got us. <laughs> it was actually after the evening service in church. Oh, the worst possible time to get you. And um, well, I, I like to think that, um, that I gave as good as I could get. And the fact that someone had to buy a new suit as a result of, of getting covered in their oily, flowery mess, well, I think that was their own fault, wasn't it? You know? Now, it wasn't like that with Jesus. I want you to notice that Jesus is really in control in John's gospel. John 11 finishes up by telling us that it was the time of the Passover. But the question on people's minds at the end of chapter 11 is this. What is Jesus going to do? What is Jesus going to do? Would he come to Jerusalem and celebrate the festival along with all of the rest of the Jews, God's people? Because orders had already went out, and the orders had already went out to say this. If anyone knew where Jesus was, they were to tell the, the priests and the Pharisees so that Jesus might be arrested. You see, unlike Vicky and I, who were just going to get egged and floured and then released, the stakes were much, much higher for Jesus. They were seeking to arrest him, yes, but they were seeking to arrest him because they wanted to have him killed. This was serious. And so if you were advising Jesus, you might say, Jesus, probably better you don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere too close to Jerusalem. Just stay away. But remember, Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. We've seen it again and again throughout John's gospel. Until his hour would come, he would not die. He was the one who was very much in control. And so it is Jesus who decides what to do. And heading towards Jerusalem is exactly what happens. 12 verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. You see, right from the off in, in chapter 12, Jesus gives us a number of key details to help us kind of set the scene for what's about to take place. It's six days before the Passover, six days before the Passover. And those who already know the Easter story, well, then you will know that it is after celebrating the Passover supper that Jesus is arrested and is then killed on the cross. And John wants us to know this. John wants us to know that it is just six days before the Passover. It's a week from Jesus' death at this point. And even as we think of the Passover, having read through John's gospel up until this point, we hear Passover and, and our mind goes back to John the Baptist and his testimony about Jesus back in chapter one, where he sees Jesus coming and what is it he exclaims? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What happens to the Lamb? Well, the Passover Lamb back in Exodus was killed. Isn't that what happens? 
was killed and it was the blood of the lamb that was put over the doorpost and that's what saved the household. The household who had obeyed and trusted God's word. It's six days before the Passover. Jesus is the Lamb of God. I want you to keep that in your mind. And then John tells us that Jesus comes to Bethany. He isn't forced to come. He isn't under compulsion to come. But rather, he chooses to come. And Bethany is only two miles from Jerusalem. Jesus is getting close to Jerusalem. He isn't afraid to go close, for Jesus is the one who is in control. But for Jesus, geographically speaking, he really is on his movement towards death. But although we, the reader, are already picking up on some of those hints of what's to come regarding the death of Jesus, John also wants to remind us of Jesus' power over death. Remember, this little place called Bethany, we, we've seen it pretty recently, haven't we? It's, it's, it, well, it's actually come up in chapter 11, so we've just looked at it, we've just finished looking at it. And this is the little village where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And just in case you could possibly forget what happened to Lazarus, John includes it again, just in case we're forgetful. He says, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so even in this one sentence, we have hints, hints of the movement towards death for Jesus, and yet pointing back, pointing back to what has happened to Lazarus. And it's almost as if, it's almost as if John in the gospel is saying this, yes, but Remember, although he's heading towards death, remember, remember Jesus' power and that death is not the end of the story. Verse two, so they gave a, a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Well, it's no surprise that on Jesus' return back to Bethany that they, they, they give him dinner. And uh, what's Martha doing? Well, Martha is Serving, again, there's no surprise there if we know Martha. What does Lazarus do? Well, he's reclining with Jesus. Surely Jesus and Lazarus are are kind of the two who are the center of all of the attention at this point. One of them has been raised from the dead, and uh, the other was the one who raised him from the dead. And so surely all the eyes were on them. But look at what Mary does. Look at what Mary does. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a, a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. We've already seen Jesus' control. Now we're seeing Mary's devotion. Mary's devotion. Just just look at what she does. Jesus has come. Others are, are serving him food and sitting with him at the table. And she wants to show this extravagant love and and humble service to Jesus. And so she takes the ointment, a a pound in weight. It was made from pure nard. It was really expensive. In fact, from what Judas later says, he says it could have been sold for 300 denarii. 300 denarii is about an average person's wages at at that point. Perhaps the equivalent of, I don't know, 25, 30,000 pounds, all just being tipped out, poured out on Jesus' feet. 
And then after anointing his feet, she continues to, to wipe his feet with her hair. And so what we see is this extravagance. Think of the, the monetary value that she pours out as she shows love and devotion to Jesus. But what we also see is a humble heart, isn't it? It's one thing to anoint someone's head, but here she anoints his feet. And then she lets down her hair and, and wipes them. You wonder if, if she had this planned out. wonder had she thought through, this is what I will do when I see Jesus next. Remember how the last conversation that John records with Mary went, we see that back in uh, verse 32 of chapter 11. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. My brother would not have died. She was weeping. She was in the midst of, of grief and for loss for her brother. And then Jesus had done this, this most remarkable of things. Jesus had spoken. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, this man who'd been dead for four days, comes out of the grave. And he's alive. Well, it seems that Mary knows that this sign points to whom Jesus is and to the only right response to him, to humble herself before him and to pour out all that she has in worship of him. And it's a wonderful picture of devotion, isn't it? It's a wonderful picture of devotion to Christ. It's humble, it's costly, and it's beautiful. And John writes that the house was filled with the fragrance, filled with the fragrance of perfume. It's almost as if this, this act of worship that has just taken place lingers constantly in the air as a reminder to all who were there of her love for Jesus. And it's into that lingering scent of worship that John interjects to tell us about Judas. Look at verse four. But, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, what was this ointment? Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You can almost hear it in John's voice, can't you? You can almost hear it in John's voice as he writes into this beautiful, beautiful moment of love and devotion that Judas, Judas the traitor, for, for John, it's, it's as if it's almost impossible to look back at Judas and not remember, this is Judas the traitor, the one who would betray Jesus. And it's into, into that moment of worship that Judas the traitor speaks. And it's as if John wants us to see the contrast between these two individuals. Now, what is it that Judas's concern is? Well, it looks like at first glance his concern is for poor people, isn't it? He says, what a waste here. Here's a year's wages. And it's just literally just poured out over Jesus' feet. Couldn't that have been used better? What? Mary, what a waste. Ah, dearie me. <laughs> but then jumps in the narrator. Then jumps in the narrator who gives us some really important insight into what's really going on in Judas's heart. It wasn't actually that he had a deep care for the poor. Actually, Judas was a thief. And he was the trusted accountant 
among the disciples who held the purse strings. And it turns out that what he was doing was he was often opening the purse strings, loosening the purse strings, helping himself to everything that was in the bag. He was a thief. And so what have we seen? We've seen Jesus' control. We've seen Mary's devotion. But here we see Judas' deceit. Judas' deceit. Perhaps it shocks us. Perhaps it shocks us as we read this story. And maybe it shocks us for a number of reasons. Firstly, Jesus clearly knew that Judas was not a genuine disciple. Jesus knew that. We'll see that even more clearly um, whenever they gather for the Last Supper together, a little bit later in John's Gospel. But Jesus, even though he is in control, allows Judas to be part of his 12, even though he knows what will happen. That's shocking, isn't it? And often we're, we're shocked whenever we hear names of, of people who come out and have deconstructed their faith. That's kind of the, the terminology that's often used now, isn't it? Maybe it was someone famous who claimed to be a, a disciple of Jesus. Maybe a, a famous preacher that you listened to. Maybe it was someone who was an elder within a church. Maybe they'd been a, a Christian author or a, a, a hymn writer. And then something happens and they come out and deny their faith. And sometimes it rattles us, doesn't it? But sometimes it's not someone famous away out there. Sometimes it's someone much closer to home. Sometimes it's someone in our, our church family. Maybe one of your close friends. Maybe someone you served in a mission team with. Maybe someone who was part of the, the Christian Union executive back, at, back when you were younger. And, and you look back and now they're nowhere. They deny the faith. Perhaps we feel rattled, and yet, and yet, in some sense, it should not really shake the foundation, should it? Because the Bible is clear in giving us examples of those who look like they are disciples, even maybe look like they are some of the closest disciples to Jesus, and yet, their hearts are rotten. Their hearts do not love Jesus. Now, the thing is, neither I nor you are God. And we're not one of the men here being carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the Scriptures. And so we cannot determine exactly what is going on in another man or another woman's heart. We use wisdom. We use discernment. We seek to look for fruit of the Spirit. Absolutely. But ultimately... It's only really God who knows what's going on in someone else's heart. And we can trust God with that. We can trust God with that. We can only judge what we can see and what we can hear. We can only judge by the testimony of their, their life that is laid out before us. But hearts are deceitful things. And sometimes we can be fooled. Jesus knew the truth about Judas and his heart, but clearly the other disciples didn't see it. They even trusted Judas with the money bag. If there had been any doubt, surely that would be the first thing that they'd say, well, let's pass that over to someone else. But they didn't. And perhaps another thing that shocks us is that Judas, he hides his deceitful motives behind what sounds like a loving heart. It sounded like Judas really did care for the poor, didn't it? That, that, that's what it sounded like. But actually... His care was only for himself, and he was wanting it for selfish 
gain. Now, rather than looking around the church and looking at others this morning and wondering what the motives are that are going on in their hearts, I don't want us to do that. I want us to take this chance to hold up the mirror and to think about our own hearts this morning. Maybe we act righteously to those looking onwards, but it could be out of a heart that isn't motivated for love for Jesus or gratitude towards Jesus, but rather out of a heart that is just seeking personal gain. And so this morning, pray that God will expose sinful motives within your heart. Pray that God will show that to you, sinful motives within your heart, and then repent. Repent and seek with God's help to live righteous lives, fueled by hearts that really do love Jesus. Do you know that many in the world today are obsessed with social activism, food banks, creation care, social justice. Maybe, maybe that's something that you've got a real heart for, and yet... Here's the thing, just like Judas, sometimes, sometimes it can actually be a cover-up to a heart that hates Jesus. It can be a cover-up for a heart that hates Jesus. For they are not wanting to do it out of glory of God. Rather, they're wanting to do it out of the glory for man. I wonder this morning what's going on in your heart. What's going on in your heart? Do you love Jesus? I know that many of you here do love Jesus. Uh, maybe, maybe what's going on in your heart is really that you are giving, giving costly worship, really devoted to Jesus. Maybe you're actually someone here who is like Mary and you're, you're pouring out your life in service and in worship. And if that's the case, let me encourage you this morning. Let me encourage you. Because the world and the value systems of our world look on at what you're doing as you seek to be obedient to God, giving up your time and your money, seeking to, to fight the natural sinful desires that well up within you. And it says that what you're doing is such a waste. It's such a waste. Why would you not spend all your money on yourself? The world can't understand that. Why would you not spend all your money on yourself? You give a, a tithe to church, and the world says, you are crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? You take the Lord's Day once a week, and you don't work, but you seek to, to spend it in, in worship with God's people. Why would you do that? The world looks on and says, that's just, that's just a waste. Why spend your Sunday morning here? Why come back this evening? That's such a waste of a day, is it not? You could do anything you want. You could lie up. You could watch Netflix. You could be shopping. You could go for a nice walk in the forest. Surely that would be a better use of your day. What a waste to gather with God's people each week. Maybe you're refusing to date someone because you haven't found a, a godly Christian man or woman that you're willing to go on a date with. And the world says, that is crazy. The world says, just, you know, if they're nice, go for it. If they're, if they're attractive, go for it. If they treat you well, great, go for it. If you enjoy it, go for it. Don't, don't hold back this relational side of your life. Don't let, don't let Jesus control that. 
and yet costly, worship of Jesus is taking him at his word and saying, actually, I know that would be to turn against Jesus and his word. And so I'm not going to do it. Well, there's lots of ways in which if we really do devote our lives to Jesus, the world is going to look on at how we live and say, such a waste, such a pity. Look at, look at what they could be doing. And it's such a waste. And yet, if you love Jesus, then look at Mary. Look at what Mary does and and this extravagant, costly, all-in worship of Jesus as a model, a model for what it is to live as one of Christ's people. Maybe you're here and, and you do love Jesus, but you're also aware of sinful motives that kind of tussle within our hearts. I think if we're honest, all of those who love Jesus, we feel that, don't we? The tussle within our hearts. Sinful motives that keep wanting to creep their way back in. Perhaps they're even masquerading themselves behind a cloak of godliness and righteousness. But if you recognize that this morning, what do we do with sin? We take it to Jesus. We take it to Jesus and we confess our sin. And we seek the the spirit of God to work in our hearts, to change our sinful desires into good and godly desires. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're like Judas. You're not, you're not following Jesus. Maybe you're here at church. Maybe actually some other people at church think that you're a Christian just because you come here the odd time. But you know that up until now your heart has been set against Jesus. We'll look finally at Jesus' warning, verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the prayer you always have with you, but you do not always have me. You see, Jesus steps in. Here he's, he's strong, isn't he? He's showing this strong shepherd-like care for his sheep that we thought about just a few weeks ago. He doesn't leave her alone. He steps in. And the, little, the wee bit that comes next is it's a little bit tricky. Um, the ESV, it says so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The NIV says it was, um, it was intended that she, could, she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Another commentator translates it like this. He says, do you suppose that she should have kept it until the day of my, my burial? Those are all kind of hard to kind of maybe figure out exactly, exactly which one it should be. And maybe depending on how... You, the, the translator you'd follow, you'd see a slightly different emphasis, but I want you to see what I think is the main thing. The thing that is really clear is this. Death is on the mind of Jesus. Do you see that? Death is on the mind of Jesus. Jesus knew where he was heading. Jesus knew that he was heading to the grave. The day in which he's been walking is, is almost over. Nighttime is, is almost here, and that means for Jesus his death and his burial. Was it, was it that in anointing Jesus, Mary was recognizing that Jesus was close to death? Was it that she signaled more than she knew when she poured out that ointment on his feet? Was it that she 
knew that this was likely to be the last time that she would meet face to face with Jesus. Verse 8, for the poor you always have with me, but you will not always have me. It wasn't that Jesus did not care for the poor. I mean, just look at his life and his ministry, and you will see that he really does care for the poor. But but Jesus is making the point to those around him who are listening, his time on earth is short. In fact, it's almost up. So he's saying, worship me now. You will not always be able to do this. Worship me now. You see, Jesus is sending out a warning, isn't he? He's saying, get your hearts right. Set your hearts on him. Set your hearts on Jesus. Make sure that you're worshiping him is, is really what is the priority of your life. Make sure that is what marks your life. Jesus was heading towards death, and he knew that either our hearts are like Mary, loving him, or like Jesus, are proud and unrepentant and hard. And the time is limited. The time is limited in which hearts can change. There is an urgency to the decision to follow Jesus. And just like those in John 12 would not always have Jesus with them, nor do we have endless time before Jesus will return or will call an end to our life here on earth. And so as Jesus was laying out a warning to them then, he also lays out a warning to us now. There is an urgency There is an urgency with which we respond to the gospel of Jesus. The good news that Jesus really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The good news that for those who trust in Jesus, he faced the punishment of death so that we would not have to. The good news that for those who believe in Jesus and receive him as their Lord and Savior, then death and the grave for us is only that ramp, only the ramp into paradise with Jesus. Jesus was heading towards death. But the question is, how will you live? How will you live? Is your life one marked with love for Jesus or a refusal to believe? In fact, even in the next few verses that follow that account, we continue to see this worked out. Glance down with me, verse 9. What do we see? Large crowds are there to see Lazarus, the man raised from the dead. Then in verse 11, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus as a result of that very sign. They could see that the sign, that the the, the miracle of, of raising this man from the dead showed that Jesus really was the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they might have life in his name. But then look at sandwiched in between verse 10. Verse 10, there are still some, some who have been able to see Lazarus raised from the dead, and yet they refuse to believe. They refuse to believe. In fact, the the chief priests, not only do they refuse to believe, not only do they want to have Jesus killed, but now they're making plans to have Lazarus killed as well. Because people are looking at Lazarus, seeing the truth and believing in Jesus. And so what do they think? Well, there's only one thing for it. Let's take Lazarus out. They had hard hearts, refusing to believe. 
And so this morning, do not be like these Pharisees, these scribes, these chief priests. Do not harden your heart. Believe in and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And don't put it off. Do not delay. There is a sense of urgency. For our days on this earth are short, and nor does any of us know when they will end. The clock is ticking, and we don't know when it stops. Like Jesus, we too are moving towards death. We're moving towards death, but the question is, how do you live today? How do you live today? Because as we thought about last week, there is only two categories. We have belief and we have unbelief. Belief and unbelief. Either humbly coming and worshiping Jesus, devoting our lives to him, or proudly having a hard heart, rejecting him and refusing to bow the knee. Come and follow Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, we see two characters, one whose heart is moved by love and devotion for Jesus, and the other whose heart is hard and selfish and sin-focused. Lord, I pray that we might have soft hearts, humble hearts, believing in and receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior and living out lives in obedience to him. Lord, for those here who today are finding things tough, as the world watches on and looks at how they live and say, what a waste, what a waste of a life as they seek to live obediently to your call, might you encourage them, might you strengthen them, might they know that living for Jesus is never a waste. Being obedient to Jesus is never a waste. Lord, for those who are struggling, those who are struggling to live for Jesus, to give their lives in full devotion and worship. Lord, might you continue to change them, sanctify them. Might they grow in godliness. Might you strengthen them as believers. For those who are here today who at the moment are like Judas with hard hearts, maybe even veiled hard hearts, might you soften them and might they come to put their trust and their belief in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen.